0: Welcome to the 2 Degrees C Climate Chat Podcast, your weekly guide to what's happening within the climate around the world. My name is Neil Vinikirk, the Executive Director and a founding member of 2 Degrees C. Along with co-founders Dr. Carson Schein and Jenny Disson, we cover issues relating to the climate crisis. So join us as we explore in the 2 Degree C Climate Chat. Welcome back to the 2 Degree C Climate Chat podcast. Our guest today is Jeremy Shavey. He's the chief scientific officer and co-founder of Ecobot. Jeremy has used his ecology and botany background to develop a software that offers a change in the way that environmental fieldwork is performed. Joining me today to interview Jeremy are Two Degree C co-founders, Jenny Disson and Dr. Carson Schein. Okay, Carson, so before we bring Jeremy into the conversation, I had a question... Um, with regard to wetlands and carbon sequestration and um, how methane release from those areas impacts the climate in, in the overall scheme.
1: Thanks, Neil. Uh, the, you know, the idea of methane it's, in the atmosphere is really one of the more potent greenhouse gases, about, I would say 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide for the same concentration. Um, it's, it's a lot lower concentration than CO2, but, uh, again, can have an outsized impact and the wetlands are, are actually a, a, pretty large source of methane. I think they account for about a third of all methane emissions worldwide. Um, so, um, and that's, this just happens as, uh, things decompose in the, in the water and such, uh, and, uh, and methane, methane's produced. What we're seeing though, is that, uh, as, uh, high latitude uh permafrost areas are starting to thaw they are they're becoming wetlands and they're adding to some of the some of the emissions that are uh, that are coming out in 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 these areas and really exacerbating the climate crisis
0: and we're concerned about methane specifically because of its its um, um heating properties correct
1: that's right it's uh it's it's far more effective at uh at intercepting and re-radiating, um, heat energy.
0: Well, let's welcome our guest today is Jeremy Shavey. He's the chief scientific officer and co-founder of ECOBOT. So welcome, Jeremy. Thank you, Nick. You're welcome. So... Jeremy, let's have you introduce yourself to the listeners and to you know maybe describe your bio for us.
2: Sure, yeah. So my background is in uh, forest ecology and uh, plant taxonomy. And I've had a specific interest and focus on sensitive areas and sensitive habitats um, for the majority of my career Um, very strong interest in spray cliff communities, cloud forests, uh, wetlands, and, uh, you know, sort of karst regions. I like places where uh, I'm drawn to places that are edge places and edge places, of course, as ecotones, are a place where so many different uh, life cycles cross and mingle and meet together. So you have high amounts of biodiversity, and you also have fantastic amounts of nutrient availability. Um, and so all of the great action is happening in these ecotones. And frequently, the edges of these ecotones are where a lot of the really sensitive communities are that are more at risk because of whatever it might be, whether it's anthropogenic, um, or if it's just uh, you know encroachment of other species or things that may be changing as the climate shifts, like all of these come to play in sensitive habitats. So um, I worked with the University of North Carolina for a number of years at a biological research station in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, and then was uh, uh, drawn very quickly into the consulting world, working with threatened and endangered species assessments, conservation planning, NEPA-related work, wetlands and stream assessments, and restoration projects. So pretty pretty, uh, interesting and uh, work that's very fulfilling to me on, on a very heart as well as the mental basis. So I get to touch the, the passion inside, but also the scientist that is uh, equally as important to me in, in, this, in the 21st century. So then uh, let's see, three years ago, started EcoBot based on my experience in the field. Um, just seeing a lot of opportunity to ramp up some of the natural resources monitoring um, into the 21st century utilizing technology and geospatial science dovetailed together with boots on the ground and with some of the remote sensing capabilities that are uh, now available to scientists and be able to bring that together into a really concise uh, usable tool that scientists are using to, uh, to help with their monitoring and assessments of wetlands in north america
0: that's great so you're a wetland specific scientist so maybe you can start by explaining you know what wetland science consists of and you know why that's important with regard to the climate conversation
2: well i think it's like anything neil in 21st century where we have an opportunity to focus into such such niche environments where we can look specifically at hyper-specific observations. So let me dive back into your question now. So wetland science is a very broad topic because you're gonna have people that are in the regulatory and policy side, you're gonna have people that are in the monitoring, you know, for changes over time side, then you're gonna have people that are hyper-specific on assessments. So that's, you know, in the science and policy section, but then you're also going to be looking at people in wetland science that are also tied to geologists when you're dealing with mineral rights and acquisitions you're dealing with uh you know some of the things that uh, karsten may work with when you're dealing with dispersion of various pollutants and gases and how those impact an ecosystem and so within wetland science there's also a fair amount of monitoring of how do pollutants or how do temperatures change things one of the projects i've been involved with for years is actually Similar to what Carson spoke to before is monitoring of wetlands in the Arctic up in northern Scandinavia and looking to see how some of the more southern species that are less hardy are slowly migrating north and how that permafrost is thawing out to deeper levels and allowing all of those organics to get a little bit of interchange with the gases from the atmosphere, which then are being released. So, yeah, there's all kinds of amazing ways that people engage. And so I'm a member of the Society for Wetland Scientists, international organization, a lot of great, great scientists and business folks and policy folks um, in that organization. And uh, so my focus of course, is mostly on the monitoring and assessment side of things.
0: Right Now
2: these wetlands, they they
0: provide quite a, Uh, or they promote biodiversity in the form of, you know, providing a haven for for species, you know, whether it be birds or other wildlife. But there's also um, an impact relating to the way um, city architecture is done and infrastructure. Can you perhaps help us understand that?
2: Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I see happening more and more with uh, some of the larger urban areas is the utilization for wetlands as uh you know potentially as like living stormwater retention um some of the smaller municipalities out carson's way as well as in some european countries are experimenting with the utilization of wetland ecosystems like simulated wetland ecosystems for wastewater management but also for carbon sequestration um i think that the uh, you know when when looking at the uh, interaction of wetlands and cities. A lot of cities, of course, there's there's growth. There's the desire to, in some places, potentially fill in wetlands and um, turn them into habitable areas. In other areas, you see a really strong focus in working with the existing habitat and how can that enhance the human and nature interchange. And so I think that there's a tremendous opportunity, you know, between like uh, wetland conservation, uh, wetland enhancement, wetland restoration, in a very similar niche as like living roofs and doing like you know green walls, um, allowing for the natural vegetation to help with the cooling um, that you get from some of the heat island effects in some of the urban areas. Um, so i think that that is probably on a in a broad context is will answer you there yeah absolutely and, and, you know, and correct correct me
1: correct me if i'm wrong but uh you know i think wetlands uh, really are a really critical part of natural infrastructure in and they filter a lot of runoff and such that would
2: otherwise wind up in the oceans it's it's i mean to me it's fascinating how much how much uh biogenic as well as anthropogenic uh, feedback that a wetland gives. I mean, we've kind of talked a little bit about the very large uh, sort of landscape level, uh, biogenic side of it, but from the human side, yes, like the filtration of nutrients, uh, the filtration of sediments, um, the buffering of, of, you know, semi-solid waste. Um, you know, there's some very practical elements to it as well Um, and you know one of the things I mean I might sidestep a little bit just for a moment but like with recent revamping of uh, protected waters of the United States rules um, under the Clean Water Act by our previous administration you know you can really see this like sort of pendulum or ping-pong effect of like really trying to determine where streams or wetlands start and stop and it's one of these things it's kind of like where does where do my where do my Where do my veins start and stop? Like we can create a map, but once we get into the capillary action, there's so much like, if we remove all the capillaries from our human body, we won't function. But that's essentially what uh, some of the revamping of uh, Waters of the United States rules is looking at. And so when I look at like where I grew up in Ohio, there's all these massive upland areas that were at one time forested wetlands that most people don't even think of as wetlands. And so that's one thing I'll just put in as a pitch is like, everybody knows what a saltwater estuary looks like. Everybody knows what the Everglades look like, but most people don't realize is that they've got a wetlands in their backyard. And it might be because it's just a seasonal wetland. Maybe it's only inundated for two or three weeks for a month, but the amount of water storage that those soils and that forest might have. And then as it slowly releases that water, like you remove that and put in, even even pervious surfaces all the water is rushing through and then dumping into our streams mm-hmm. and so all of the all of the wetlands have a really critical role from the most seemingly upland most humans would not associate as being a wetland to the most obvious yay look at the alligators and the big birds in the in the everglades you know yeah
0: Described barefoot luxury, the casually sophisticated Southern Cross Club is Little Cayman's original resort. This hidden gem is as unique and vibrant as the island it inhabits. A true island treasure, it is the perfect place to dive, fish and relax. Its 14 beachfront bungalows are situated on 900 feet of white sand, only minutes from the world-class diving found only in Little Cayman. Visit www.southerncrossclub.com to book your escape to tranquility. So, Jenny, how is it that you came to know Jeremy? How how did you guys find each other?
3: Yeah, thanks, Neil, for asking. Um, Well, I've come across ECOBOT at this place called the Collider, which is located in Asheville. Collider is a gathering, a think tank of climate experts, environmental experts, and those that are interested in the... um, talking about climate, environmental issues and how to mainstream... um, solutions, uh, both from public and private and academic arenas. Um, And so Collider houses a number of companies, establishments, and it's a member-driven organization. And Ecobot happens to be one of them. So they were presenting at a coffee hour. And I had a chance to meet Jeremy and Lee. um, And they were talking about wetlands. So as an environmental engineer, I don't have a lot of other folks to talk about these topics. So that's how it started Uh, we rubbed elbows at a climate think tank venue um jeremy it's great to connect with you here on this podcast um okay so uh we met and i remember we spoke and i said we will be speaking many times and so tell us about ecobot and what it is and how you arrived at creating this company
2: great so ecobot is a uh, software platform that allows scientists to do their environmental due diligence and natural resources monitoring and assessment work uh a lot more efficiently Um, it works on ios devices out in the field for the field data collection has uh some very robust geospatial integrations which allows us to integrate with uh with esri and uh Yeah, it's primarily focused on the uh, environmental regulatory space. So uh, federal and state regulators are utilizing it and also uh, environmental consultants and uh, people that are working with mitigation banking.
3: So that was a very modest explanation of Ecobot. From what I understand, it is one of the only app-based solutions out there for, downloading analyzing completing and submitting environmental assessment forms is that right
2: yeah yeah Yeah.
3: So so that's a that's a big deal and so tell us why that is so important
2: well it's important for uh the monitoring of the waters of the united states so all the waters that you know streams lakes wetlands estuaries that are critical for not just uh, navigation and uh, anthropogenic use, but also for all of its important roles that it plays in uh, biodiversity and ecosystems.
3: So I'll go out on a limb and go as far as to say, what you essentially do is help minimize the time that it takes in the process to submit an assessment form, get it reviewed, approved, analyzed, And that's a big deal because the sooner we get the response back from the assessment form, you understand what is happening at the wetlands, what is special, what's at risk, et cetera. And so um, one of the biggest uh, game changers, I think Ecobot has been able to put in the marketplace is uh, expediting the capacity for solutions because you're reducing the time uh, that the form is stuck in the process. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, Yeah, we're saving most companies about 50% 50% of their level of effort.
3: You know, wetlands are experiencing a number of stressors including climate and climate change. Do we have enough information and enough data to understand what those stress what the exacerbating stress factor from climate change is?
2: Now that's and something we can potentially open up a little bit more which is okay, exciting right. because some of the things that we're doing with like US Fish and Wildlife and Esri and all of our scientists are working on um, is you know, we we're creating a massive amount of boots on the ground data. We're not talking about modeling and remote sensing, projecting. We're talking about real humans uh, making real observations of what's going on in the wetlands. And especially for long-term monitoring sites, you're getting years of data in terms of soil change, hydrology change, uh, vegetation, speciation, diversity, you know, uh, changes across time as well. And so we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of data points from all over the nation that's helping, you know, and will continue to help with an understanding of the complexity of our wetlands and also the, the roles that they play. But more so than anything, it's real data from on the ground, which then can be utilized for planning purposes, policy purposes, and building better models for the future. So I'm actually, I'm uh, working with a colleague of mine at Esri, she, uh, uh, Dr. Gina O'Neill, she has worked um, with creating a model that allows us to predict where wetlands might be. Well, now we can take real data from boots on the ground incorporate it into that model and into some of the machine learning part, we can utilize the data of the vegetation, the vegetative infrastructure of those communities in order to uh, create way more informed uh, models that can then help us have an understanding of changes from a modeling and landscape perspective too. So it's like really tying things together between you know, science on the ground and then the geospatial modeling and long-term planning and policy. Good.
0: One of the things that I, I also saw with regard to wetlands is that cities are using these areas um, in their planning for retention ponds and things like that. So just like you said, you know, these are runoff areas um, for rainfall. And Carson, you know, as we know, the uh, the atmosphere is warming and, you know, we're, you know, it's good and it has a great ability to store moisture. How's this going to play into it?
1: Uh, well, I mean, obviously, as you increase the amount of uh, moisture capacity in the atmosphere, you know, you're rainstorms are going to get a bit more intense and more frequent it's just gonna there are gonna be places where you're going to have a lot more ability to rain out a lot more uh, precipitation at once Um, but at the same time there are also shifts in patterns so you know despite being able to hold more moisture uh, a lot of places just will not have that moisture to hold and and that goes back into into the idea of removing wetlands these are these are major sources for evaporating moisture into the atmosphere, and if those are removed, then you simply don't have the the, the moisture in 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 the atmosphere to rain out. Mm-hmm. So, Jeremy, you,
0: you know, if we're expecting more rainfall, um, how can these wetlands be used by city planners more effectively to mitigate you know these negative impacts?
2: I, I mean, there's a there's a few ways that I think that that touches into. Some of them we've already spoken into here. I mean, the I think the distribution of velocity of stormwater, you know, from an engineering perspective is probably one of the most literally impactful uh, that some of these simulated uh, wetlands can create. And I guess the beauty of a simulated wetland is that eventually it's going to morph into a at least a naturalized wetland, um, which may take on more functionality. Um, and then, of course, you've got the pollutant discharge um, uptake, you know, through phytoremediation that can take place in these locations, and then potentially be harvested out or removed, um, so that those can be properly taken care of or put in, changed chemically or thrown some process into some innate form. Um, but I think you know one of the things that plays in, and Carson was speaking to this uh, or alluding to this, and I kind of want to open it up a little bit more is when you take you know a, a natural wetland ecosystem, especially something that's forested. I mean, I love you know I'll see the trees in the background of for, of you there, Carson, because it's a great reminder of that. Of like you know all of these trees are absorbing the water and you know through transpiration releasing it back to the atmosphere, and through that releasing they're also releasing volatile organic compounds which are then able to seed the clouds and so uh you know the amount of isoprenes or monoterpenes or other organics that these trees are able to exude uh actually seed the clouds uh, as a lot of work has been done over that in the last 40 years um whereas a lot of the transpiration coming from more emergent plants doesn't necessarily have that capability um, or less in capability, they're releasing less, less of those gases back into the environment to allow for the seeding of those clouds. And so as he spoke to, uh, there's some loss in the absorption rate that happens with that. So I think if we're losing uh, green space in cities that are allowing for more of that slow absorption, certainly it's better to have stormwater uh, plans in place that will help absorb some of that um, but you know based on the science I think that these need to be built to be eventually forested wetlands where it's appropriate in order to not only accommodate for storm water and nutrients but also to help with that absorption and transpiration of moisture in a in, in a way that's more metered out over time and mm. is more beneficial to uh this the seeding of appropriate storm events for the region
0: are you you seeing um specific climatic changes inside these wetland areas that you're studying uh
2: i mean certainly when you, you know we were speaking to latitude before when we're speaking you know i think what we're seeing is a movement north you see a movement north of species um, away from the equator, things that are more acclimated to the equator are moving north. Things that are more acclimated to temperate zones are moving into the boreal forest. Boreal sp- species are moving up into the Arctic. I mean, these are all things that are trackable, that are measurable. I mean, there's you know, there's no question you know that it's happening. Um, so I don't know. I think that answers your question, Neil. I mean.
0: No, no, for sure. I was just
2: wondering if you were
0: seeing, you know, relating to species, but you're, you're absolutely nailing it on the head with the, that, the migration of species. We don't actually think about it, especially in, in, in plants, that plants actually do migrate. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I'd also add that uh, in, in, in that migration, there's also the factor of, of simply having barriers now in place uh, to right. that migration where there may not have been in the past uh, interstate highways, for example, um, large urban areas these can these can greatly inhibit the ability of these species to find a new habitat
2: or it tends to uh, to create habitat more for species that aren't what in you know ecology we would consider climax species it's encouraging species that, Uh, you know, regenerative or annual or more perennial-based plants because they move faster. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, highway and urban barriers, but we're also talking about vast swaths of commercial farming barriers too that, you know, essentially are biodiversity deserts.
0: With so many wonderful destinations around the world to choose from, a little help can go a long way. Quest Dive Adventures is your premium adventure travel company, offering a wide and diverse selection of destinations to choose from. With dive adventures from the Pacific to the Caribbean, and adventure travel from Costa Rica to Africa. Quest Dive Adventures offers packages including flights and accommodations, activities, transfers, diving and more. Everything to enjoy your perfect vacation. What's your Quest?
3: you know, wetlands are experiencing a number of stressors, including climate and climate change. Do we have enough information and enough data to understand what those stress, what the exacerbating stress factor from climate change is?
2: Now, that's and something we could potentially open up a little bit more, which is okay, exciting great. because me, some of the me, things that we're doing with like U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Esri and all of our scientists are working on um, is, I mean, we're creating a massive amount of boots on the ground data. We're not talking about modeling and remote sensing projecting. We're talking about real humans out uh, making real observations of what's going on in the wetlands. And especially for long term monitoring sites, you're getting years of data in terms of soil change, hydrology change, uh, vegetation, speciation, diversity you know, uh, changes across time as well. And so we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of data points from all over the nation that's helping, you know, and will continue to help with an understanding of the complexity of our wetlands and also the, the roles that they play. But more so than anything, it's real data from on the ground, which then can be utilized for planning purposes, policy purposes, and building better models for the future. So I'm actually, I'm uh, working with a colleague of mine at Esri, she, uh, uh, Gina, Dr. Gino Neil, she has worked um, with creating a model that allows us to predict where wetlands might be. Well, now we can take real data from boots on the ground, incorporate it into that model and into some of the machine learning part. We can utilize the data of the vegetation, the vegetative infrastructure of those communities in order to uh, create way more informed uh, models that can then help us have an understanding of changes from a modeling and landscape perspective too. So it's like really tying things together between, you know, science on the ground and then the geospatial modeling and long-term planning and policy.
3: Jeremy, we've talked a lot about the number of different stressors that affect wetlands and um, we talk about a lot of benefits that the wetlands provide yet it's underappreciated or perhaps not lesser known how climate change is impacting wetlands. Can you talk a little bit about what you are seeing Um, and let's just let's just go from there.
2: Well, I guess again, like most of what I see is the uh, the mobility of rapidly reproducing invasive species, you know, whether those are vegetative based or, or uh, um, you know, animals. Like, you know, there's there's, you know, that's one one aspect of change. I mean, you know, I spoke earlier to seeing northern species or southern species moving north. Um, I think that the other thing that we can frequently see is the uh you know the average temperatures of waters that are found in wetlands especially in emergent wetlands or wetlands that consist primarily of herbaceous species that the temperatures of those waters are going up which then makes it harder to uh, process you know biologically process the uh, pollutants and uh, uh, nutrient loads that might be coming into these wetlands. So I think, yeah, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a, a subtle shift, um, you know, just as, as with anything, you know, as we monitor climate change.
3: Do you think, um, when, you, when you think about these stressors, what are some of the significant challenges with regards to data? You talked about temperature, you talked about soil change, speciation, biodiversity. Um, can you talk a little bit about how good is the available data, and what would you want to have in context of best possible data? Is that out there? Could it be possible? Could we use citizen science to collect information?
2: I think that there's a fair amount of data that is readily available, both, um, you know, through services as well as um, in, in open forums. Um, however, a lot of, of data sets is you all probably know from looking at climate science are you know, pieced together over time and, you know, and really can use some refinement, which of course requires a lot more resources. So one of the data sets that frequently we lean into in respect to wetland science, um, at least in the United States is the uh, national wetland inventory um, produced by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And you know, some of those data sets are very antiquated Um, You know, frequently scientists will be out on sites and find wetlands where they're not supposed to exist, or where they're supposed to be wetlands, they no longer exist because of, you know, soil movement, because of sediment changes, because of stormwater movement and changes. Um, And so, I believe that there is a always room for improvement there. I've been in collaboration with uh, Megan Lang, the chief scientific officer, with. uh uh, fish and wildlife in respect to the wetland inventory and like i was speaking to earlier some of the work i'm doing with my colleague gina over at esri is allowing us to refine some of the processes for creating models um, that will give us better data sets but i think again like when we're dealing with the granularity that is necessary for assessments of uh, when we're looking at things in respect to wetlands that it's really important that we continue to have this interchange between the actual collection of data in the field that informs those models. And that's where Ecobot plays such a critical role um, in in helping to ascend more biological data and putting it into a format that gives it a geospatial context and allows us to continue to build better models. And so other data sets, I think there's a lot of opportunities for improvement on data sets, and there always will be. And a lot of times it comes down to funding. Um, Where can citizen science come into play? I mean, some things certainly citizen scientists can help out with, you know, from measuring temperatures of water, um, you know, potentially measuring sediment loads or, but, you know, I think a lot of ways, there's a lot of things that are very specialized um, that really require someone with an appropriate background to be able to gather. The level of data that would actually give us data schematics with appropriate level of detail that's going to be useful
0: all right guys well thank you very much jeremy for coming in today um, we really appreciate your point of view today and uh, helping us understand the role and responsibility of wetlands in the greater, greater understanding of how these affect the climate. Um, we want to wish you the best of success and uh, also to EcoBot. And I think if anyone wants to like, uh, hear or learn a bit more about EcoBot, uh, I believe it's uh, www.ecobotapp.com. Is that correct?
2: That's great. Yeah,
0: Very good. Well, thank you very much today. And uh, we, we hope to have you back uh, in the future and, uh, Maybe we can continue with a different subject. Thank you so much for today. Appreciate it. Okay, Carson, let's move to the news. And for those of you that are are new to listening to the podcast, um, we do have a newsletter that goes out once a week. And uh, we usually take two or three uh, articles that are climate related uh, from the current news cycle. And we'll uh, add them to our newsletter as well as, well as um, an interesting scientific report that we found that uh, we feel is worth sharing. So if you're like, interested in signing up for that, so just go to 2 and uh, you should find the sign up link there. Um, so Carson, today I saw a headline um, that I found was interesting. It was talking about Greenland. And it says enough ice melted on a single day to cover Florida in two inches of water. What is going on?
1: Well, um, yeah. And, and uh, I I guess you're in Florida. So this uh, would be relevant for you. Um, It's not actually going to be covering Florida just yet. Um, But yeah, just this past week, uh, something like eight and a half billion tons of, of ice, was reportedly melted off of the Greenland ice sheet um, in one day, and that's just that's just an incredible amount. If you spread if you were to spread that over an area the size of Florida, it would have a depth of of several inches of, of a couple of inches for sure. Um, but you know this is part of what is uh, projected and is already happening uh, in terms of sea level rise. Is that uh, you know, these, these especially in the, north, uh, in the uh, northern hemisphere, these ice sheets like Greenland and such and the, and the Arctic, uh, Arctic winter ice sheets are becoming smaller. They're melting away and uh, they are contributing to sea level rise. Um, if Greenland itself were to melt entirely, uh, all the ice there were to melt, it would raise sea level by, I believe, about uh, 20 feet or so. Uh, which is uh, pretty significant. Uh, but what's even more consi- significant about the, this rapid rate of melting right now is it's quickly exposing a lot of the darker ice that's underneath the the, the older ice. Um, that you know the surface layers has got a lot of snow on it, very reflective and such. This darker ice underneath is going to be able to absorb a lot more uh, solar radiation and so accelerate this process even a bit more. So that's uh, that's a bit alarming, and that may Indicate that uh, that melt off is is going to happen at a at a faster rate than uh, the models had originally thought they might.
0: And, and we're talking about land ice. We're not talking about floating sea ice, correct?
1: Correct. This is this is the uh, this is the the ice cap on on Greenland on the on the uh, landmass of Greenland itself, the glacial ice.
0: Well, I think uh, definitely interesting to watch um, with things that are going on. Um, The other headline that I picked out for today was they were talking about Bangladesh battling dengue outbreak and COVID crisis as a double blow. Um, Why was this related to the climate?
1: Well, in in some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. Uh, The particular outbreak that they're experiencing right now, which I believe they've got a bit over 2000 cases so far and it's just in its early uh, stages um is you know it's pretty heavy it's not quite as bad as they had last year where they had about 1500 cases throughout the the wet season um and previous year they had uh they had quite a lot more cases um but it's 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 a you know, it's a disease that uh, is definitely prevalent in that part of the world. It, it comes with, uh, it's mosquito-borne uh, disease that's, uh, um, you know, that's, it's spread by mosquitoes, which of course are, um, you know, bred in standing pools of water. So any wet place that has mosquitoes is, is likely to experience these sort of things. And that's, that's really the tie into to climate in this sense, is that as the temperatures warm uh, in more places and some places become wetter as, as a result of climate change, we're likely to see uh, dengue and other um, insect-borne diseases like dengue spread into places that uh, previously had never experienced them and where the population may not have any sort of built-up immunity to them um, or ability to, to address them in an in a, you know, effective way.
0: Yeah, I understand. And uh, this obviously isn't just vector-borne diseases like, like dengue, we're, we're actually talking about um, other diseases as well that are not specifically mosquito-borne but um you know uh, we understand that climate as as it's a warming climate is allowing um their proliferation of these into new areas
1: yeah and a lot of them are a lot of them are are definitely uh you know insect-borne uh, malaria um, zika things like that uh, are tied to mosquitoes and such but uh, for example cholera as is, uh, is one that's uh, becoming a little bit more prevalent as places are experiencing flooding more frequently and, and large areas of standing water where the bacteria grow and, and can uh, can spread those uh, those non-insect uh, born diseases and pathogens.
0: Well thanks Carson thanks for uh, giving us some insight there and uh, to those listening thank you very much for joining us today for the 2 climate chat and uh, we hope to see you next time. Thanks a lot Neil. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. If you have a question you would like answered, a topic for discussion, or would like to be a guest on the show, please leave a comment below. We'd love to hear your stories and climate journeys. And if you like what you've heard today, please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you hear your podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors and partners without which this podcast is not possible. With special thanks to Seren Media for producing today's episode. To find out more about our partners, please visit our website. And if you'd like to become a sponsor or partner, please email us at podcast at 2degreesc.org.